We will bless you, O Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. For you are the one who is to receive glory and honor. You are the one who is above all. Nations may say, where is their God? But we know that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And we ask that it may please you to be with us this morning as we think about your word, that your spirit, who indeed gave us your word, may give to us insight and direction and guidance in thinking about it, and then may apply it to our hearts and minds. We pray, O Lord, that we would go from here filled as if we had had a feast, because your spirit is at work. Therefore, may the meditations of my mouth and of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. If you stand for the reading of God's word, we have two scriptures we're going to be looking at. One from Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse five. And let's remember that when I read, it is as if you are hearing God speak, and it comes from his all-sufficient word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And then from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let he who has ears, ears hear what the Spirit says to his church. And you may be seated. Well, we are moving through the catechism. I'd like to, this Sunday, remind you of why we are doing this. And it comes from the first two questions. What's your only comfort in life and death? And the summary of that is that I belong to my faithful Savior who has redeemed me, who preserves me. Without the will of my Father, not a hair falls from my head. And therefore, or wherefore by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. And 
The second question goes, what things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? First, the greatness of my sin and misery. And so we took a look at the law. We took a look at who we are before God as sinners who need a Savior. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. And we took a long time to look through the very foundations of our faith. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. And with that, we took a look at uh, Ten Commandments, how we are to live. And we finish up with the catechism, probably at the high point. And that is with the subject of prayer. For prayer is the deepest and highest way of giving thanks to God. And, we, and the catechism does it by taking a look at the what's called usually the Lord's Prayer. I, I don't use that title. I call it the Disciples' Prayer or better yet, the Kingdom Prayer. And that title works a whole lot better with Grace Christian Fellowship since the K in rock, the acronym for this congregation, means kingdom. This is a prayer we utter for the kingdom of God to come and his will to be done. And not just that one phrase, but the whole thing has to do with that. That's been used by the great theologians throughout the century to explain prayer. Augustine is one of them. Luther loved it. In fact, Luther one day was asked by his barber, Luther, you're known as a praying man. How do you pray? And then he went home and he wrote a book, a little pamphlet to give to his barber. When was the last time your barber or hairstylist ever asked you, how do you pray? But he wrote a little book, and it's basically an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. And it was also Luther who is reportedly said to have said this, that he said, I have a very extremely busy day today. I, my, my calendar is just packed. I guess I need to spend three hours in prayer, not two. Now, most of us, we have a very busy day. We go, well, I got five minutes. So that's it. And he says, no, I got to spend more time. Why? Because he understood that when you spend more time in prayer, you really work out the rest of your day. You work it out in prayer before you work it out in life. Uh, Calvin in his institutes has one of the finest expositions of the Lord's Prayer, pretty much in depth. And it's part of what I use when I'm thinking about this. But it, uh, and one of the things he says is that this prayer is the key to unravel all that you need to do in prayer. In these six petitions and these, I think it's 23 words, depending upon your translation, you have the whole key to what it is to pray. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's why Jesus is a great teacher. The U.S. government can take 28,000 words to figure out the price of onions. Abraham Lincoln can take uh, just several hundred words for Gettysburg Address. Christ can tell us how to pray in these short little pithy sayings. So we're going to take a look today at the address and the first petition. Our Father in Heaven, which if you grew up with the King James, really is strange because we're used to saying, Our Father who art in Heaven. And if I fall into that, forgive me. Don't throw tomatoes. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or better yet, maybe a better translation. I, I know they do it only because this is the way it's been translated for hundreds of years. Let your name be hallowed. That's a request. Let your name be hallowed. And it is one of praise. It reminds us we are to collect our thoughts. That's what prayer is. And we're going to talk about this in a couple minutes. But really, before you come to prayer, there are times when you need to have explosive prayer. You're painful, suffering, something has happened where you just cry out to God. But most of the times when you come to him in prayer, you are to be collecting your thoughts and thinking beforehand of what you are to say. It's one of the reasons why I like to use the Psalms as a basis of prayer. You may have noticed I used Psalm 115 for the prayer that I offered this morning because I read it right afterwards. Because it solidifies, it helps us to think about what we're saying, not just babbling words or just a stream of consciousness. I think that's one of the things he's teaching us. So, let's take a look at this. R, number first one, talks about community. The prayer reminds us that we are indeed a community, not a society. Society is something that has the ability to organize itself with groups of structures and systems. Community speaks of our connectedness through relationships. You want to see the difference between a society and community? Think about what happened this week with the tornadoes. The society has FEMA. It has all these organizations to which we give good tax money, for which some of it goes to administration. And some of it finally gets back to the use that it was meant to do. And it has all these regulations of how you are to do things. Uh, when, I, when I have a good rain, I get a puddle of water in the back of my yard. And I'm always afraid someone from EPA is going to come and look at it and say, that's a wetland. You can't do anything with it. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, sir, come two days from now and you'll see it's desert. But a community just does things because it's relationships. And they don't need rules and regulations. People got out with their chainsaws and began to cut limbs and trees and began to do their work. You didn't need anyone saying, go do it, go do it. They just gathered there. I talked with a person on Friday from another church who said his church was just getting together and feeding people, giving them everything they needed. And not one tax dollar went to it. It was out of the generosity of their hearts. That's community. And the word R reminds us we're in a community. You don't have to have the rules and regulations. We have the relationships to help us know and care for and love one another. It also reminds us that when I pray, I pray not alone, but with all my brothers and sisters. All who are in this room right now who are Christians, who have placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, our brother and sister. We've had the same experience. It's the experience of the Holy Spirit changing our inner nature so that we now believe in God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we also have a new relationship. 
a relationship with the eternal God, the Father, through the Son, by the work of the Spirit. And when I pray, I don't pray for myself. My emphasis is upon the unity that we have and the needs of other Christians. How often have I heard and how often you may, if you analyze your prayers, you've been praying for yourself. My needs. Why my wants. My, 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 my. And yet this prayer reminds us that's a minor part of prayer. Major part of prayer is your needs, our needs, things like that. It's our community, and we are called to do that. And therefore, we pray beyond our needs. And that's the idea of the word are. Then you have the word father. You know, father is a word that Jesus used to describe his heavenly father. It is a word that, in a sense, he elevated. Because in the Old Testament, there were very few times when the word Father was ever uh, given to God. Isaiah has to be one of them, and he happens to put it at the end of his book. Where in Isaiah 63, 16, he says... For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. Oh, you, O oh Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And he's praying this in a prayer of mercy. Out of that mercy, he's calling upon God as father. And the sense that he needs God's mercy and he needs somebody who has that fatherly image who is going to help him. Your name is Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. A, a reference to the Gentiles now coming and calling God Father. Uh, Paul puts, uh, puts this like in Galatians 4, 6 when he tells us that the Holy Spirit imprompts us. This is a loose translation. It's a paraphrase. Prompts us to call our God Abba, Father. Now, there is a possibility of becoming too familiar, but the beauty of the word father, father is it has a familiarity to it. The idea of a relationship, the idea of the one who created us. For you remember, it takes a father to create a child. The one who is supposedly to take care of us and sustain us and guide us and lead us, protect us and watch over us. And this is the one to whom we are praying. And our prayers are not to begin, dear God. Now, early on in your Christian life, they may start that way. Because God may be a foreign entity to you. And there may be a formality. Just as if, uh, perchance, Donald Trump, our president, were to come in here, I don't think any of us would go up there, hi, Donald, how you doing? That's just not proper. We would call him Mr. President. Whether we like him or not doesn't matter. He is Mr. President. But if you got to know him and you're part of his family, you call him Donald. Or by whatever nickname he goes, we have no idea what it is because of the familiarity. 
And that is what, that's why I think the Lord said, you begin by using that intimate term of one who is the father of the whole community. Creator, preserver, sustainer, provider, ruler of all that family. I've, I've told you I, several times that I am, in my family, I'm called the benevolent dictator for life. I did that because one of our kids challenged who was going to rule the house, and we had a vote, and I, my, my whole platform was, you vote for me, I raise your allowance $1 per week, the child could not match it, I won. <laughs> okay? See, I lived in West Virginia for a while, I know how this operates. But I'm a benevolent dictator for life, and it's a joke now because my kids are all 26, 27 and above, 28 and above. But I pull it out every once in a while to remind them of who I am. And they call me dad, and they call me father. They don't call me Andy. And I couldn't think of calling my father Howard. It was dad. That's a form of familiarity. At the same time, it reminds us of the relationship. He is God. I am not. I am his child not because of something in myself, but uh, that I am an adopted child. And there's a difference between being a natural child and adopted child. Our adopted children came into our family. They're, they're not like our natural children because we can't see the reflection of who we are in their face and their genes. We sometimes see it in their characteristics because they grew up in our family. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's, oh man, what did we do wrong? No, what, what did we do? But we come as adopted children. And there is a little difference, a little distance. And there has to be that difference when we come before God. But we are able to come to him as we come to God. And we can come in trust and reliance and awe and love and knowing that he is willing to help us. For notice in verse 8, before Jesus begins the prayer, he says, do not be like them. He's talking about those who heap up empty phrases. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Sometimes that's turned around and said, then why do we pray if God already knows what we need before we ask him? But the point of that passage is it is a point that he loves us. And already knowing what he needs, he's willing to give it to us when it's appropriate for us. I mean, my kids ask for all sorts of things in their life. And I kind of look at them and said, benevolent dictator in life says, no, you're not ready to drive at 10 years old. You may not even be ready to drive at 25 years old. We know what's good for our children. And to know that, know that the Father knows what you need and knows what, when you need it and how much you need it is a way of reminding ourselves that indeed he has our best interests at heart. And that's what that verse says. And so it's one of the motivations for prayer. There's an intimacy that we have with the Father while he is known. It, it's kind of counter to verse 5 
in our passage. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The Pharisees would love to go out and, and the Pharise- during the, the uh, ceremonies and, and the, the uh, services. They would stand up and they would give these very long, elegant, wonderful prayers. And the people go, yeah, wow, wasn't that great? Wasn't that marvelous? Or they would stand out on the street corner and, and at certain times of day when you were supposed to pray, they would do the same thing and people would go, oh man, he must be a holy man if he can talk that way. It's almost like those who still pray in Elizabethan English. And that's not bad. Unless you pray in Elizabethan English to think that you're more holy than anyone else. None of us are holy at all except for Christ and his imputed righteousness. It counters that. It's also in line with verse 6 about praying. Where he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You go in private not to be seen and not to be applauded by others. And that doesn't mean that we don't have public prayers and we don't pray with one another. It simply means when you do it, don't try to show up everybody else. But when you go in your prayer closet or your room, You pray to your father in secret. It's like when you have a real issue that you have to talk with your parents about. You don't want the whole family to know this issue. You don't want everyone to be aware of it. And so you go talk to your parents in secret. And you know that they're going to love you and care for you. And and you, well, at least for some of you, you hope they're going to love you, care for you and listen to you. But you do it in secret because you want them to know what's going on. When you pray, you pray to your Father the deep things of your heart. And you don't necessarily have to let that out to everybody who's around. You may let it out to a few close friends. That too is scriptural. But it is the idea that when you pray, your Father is listening. And you're praying out the depths of your heart. And it's for him you're praying. The Pharisees in the synagogue or in the corner, man, they had their reward. People clapping. Uh, In my own ministry, it was always difficult doing the pastoral prayer. Especially if I thought the prayer flowed real well. And I got out to the door and shaking hands and someone said, Pastor Andy, that was a wonderful prayer. And I'm going, oh man, Matthew 6, 5. Oh man, I didn't want that at all. But be praying in secret. There is a a belonging. You're part of something bigger than yourself when you're praying. It's not you and Jesus. It's you and the whole family of God when you pray. And you have to remember that whole context, that you do not pray alone even when you are praying alone. 
In fact, you already have the, the Trinity listening to you, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they're also connecting you with the community that you have. They're connecting you. There's an automatic bond of relationship. You are seeking fellowship with God. And we don't pray in, as verse 7 says, with Babel. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You ever talk to somebody who in five minutes repeats the same thing 40 times? That's an exaggeration. But they say it over and over and over again. And there's sometimes, maybe I'm too polite. Sometimes I look at them, I'm about ready to say, I got it. I got it the first time. What do you mean the second time? And the 50th time? No, I got it. Well, when we babble and we just keep going on and on and on and saying the same thing over and over again, I think the Father looks at us and says, I got it. I know it. I already know what you want, what you need. I got it. And again, that's the reason why we think out our prayers. I have, I didn't bring it with me, I have a notebook, a prayer notebook, where I write down the things I'm praying for, a list. And I think that's a great idea. List of needs for this congregation, for my family, for ministries and missions that we support and work with, a major emphasis upon that. And I write it down, not so I simply would forget, because I know the Spirit will bring back to my memory the things I need to pray for, but that I just don't babble as I pray. And when I find my mind tracking off in some other way, and I'm just kind of talking to myself, I go back to that list to keep me centered in upon what is important to pray. Or sometimes, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm alone on this, but sometimes when I pray, all of a sudden I'm about thinking about the answer. Well, that may not be bad, but that may not be God's answer. And I'm just babbling around. Maybe that's why it took Martin Luther three hours to pray. No, that's not true. <laughs> don't babble. Connect, you're connecting and to think about it. You're praying for the family. The same spiritual genetic makeup that we all have. You're praying for protection. And we're going to see this in a few weeks, in about five weeks, four weeks from today. When we look at that last verse, and I read it the way I think it should be translated. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Most of you will know it's the evil. But it really is, the word is a proper noun, the evil one the one who wants to destroy us. And so we're praying for that protection, that he will listen and answer and keep us, even as he kept his son from the evil one and from all those who would persecute him early or try to kill him before it was his time. And finally, part of the motivation is we know our God loves us. If you are in Christ, he alone is your Lord and Savior. God loves you with a love that can never be broken. That's why in that verse I read from Psalm 115, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness forever. Your steadfast, a love that will not let you go. 
A love that is eternal. He loved you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even a twinkle in the eye of God. He loved you. He loved you when you were rebelling against him before you came to Christ. So much that he worked in your life to convict you of your sin. To convert you by the spirit. And to bring you into his, into his kingdom. That's how much he loves you. And it's a love that will never let you go. I think we've all had parents, and as parents, there have been times we haven't loved as we ought to. Uh, you know, our parents' love ends when they die. My father died 40 years ago. My mother died about 14 years ago. And in a sense, they can't love me. Why? They're not around. The best I can do is remember the times I've had with them. But that's not true with God. It never, ever fails. And I think that's one of the issues that people in the church in our day has, have to really grapple with and come to an understanding and a, a firm conviction. God loves us in Christ forever. And if you are in Christ, you cannot break that love. Oh, you don't know what I did this week. You don't know the sins of my heart. No, I, I don't. God does, and God, I know God's love is wider and deeper and stronger than anything you have ever done. If you get anything encouraging this morning about that, that's it. It also helps us monitor our life by the security and ministry, recalling the important facts that we are secure in his love, that we do not need to perform to please him, that we need to be alert to our childlike dependence and reverence and trust toward God. Think of that. We don't have to perform to have him desire us. You know, how much of our actions are performance-oriented? Well, I want my boss to like me, so I will perform. Well, you have an obligation to perform. You have an obligation to perform because you're under contract or because it's a job and it's a work. Or, but do you do it because the most important thing is to be liked by your boss or because you want to do a good job for the Lord? Key difference. You cannot, you cannot increase God's care and love for you by what you do. Because all you've done is what he expects you to do anyway. And therefore, you are looking at your life and making sure your security is not upon what you do or who you are, but upon the Father who is, loves you. And the third part is his comprehensiveness. He's the Father in heaven. The meaning of heaven in the scripture is in, in one of three ways. One, first heaven is the air around us, the breathe, what we breathe and what we, the atmosphere. The second heaven is the solar system, the universe, the stars. But the third heaven, I think, is what Jesus is talking about, and that is the invisible, spiritual, immaterial throne of God, where he exists where he lives where he rules over stars in the universe and he rules over life he even rules over tornadoes you notice the f4 that was coming down toward dayton skipped children's hospital 
And people say, oh man, wasn't that lucky? No. It would have been horrible if it had hit children's hospital. Oh, that building's all glass. Best they could do is get them into the corridor and maybe they'd be safe if they had time to do it. But in the providence of God, he skipped. And that was his desire. You've been in an accident. And you say, oh man, that was unlucky. No, there's a reason for it. If nothing else, it ought to drive you back to the Father deeper than it ever did before. It ought to make you think about him and his care and his love for you more than anything. Because it could have been worse. And that's his throne room. And that's the meaning of heaven. That God rules over all things. Not to, your, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. O oh Lord, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. And secondly, it's the immensity of God. To be able to expect him to act from his almighty power. Ephesians 3 is one of my favorite verses. I, I love the book of Ephesians. In fact, I, I love all 66 books, but some I love more than others. Of course, the same thing is true with my children. I'm just not telling you who I love more than the others. <laughs> but Ephesians 3 goes, Now unto him, that is God, who can do immeasurably, abundantly more then all we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus and his church both now and forever. Think about that. Immeasurable power more than you can ask or think. I think it's the NIV that says imagine. Imagine what God can do in it. Poof. That's peanuts to who he is and what he has. That's the immensity. That's the beauty of God. It's also his transcendence. He exceeds our limitations and the limitations we place on him. He, we, he exceeds our limitations. You can pray for something and you think... The only way it's ever going to be done is if God does it. For instance, you're praying for somebody for their salvation. They've been on your list and you pray for them constantly day in, day out, or week after week. And I have a few of those kind of people on my list. And it's beyond my ability to save them at all. I can share the gospel with them. I can love them. I can care for them. I can try to show them a life that Christ has transformed to to some degree or other. But I can't save them. But I know God can. With man it is impossible. With God it, all things are possible in the sense of he is able to save them. And I have to plead that every time I pray for them. Lord, I share the gospel, but you had better do your work in their lives. And that's going beyond my limitations prayer does that. It shows us our limitations, our weaknesses, our inabilities and it casts us right back upon the Father. Our Father in heaven. The one who is transcendent of all this. It also counters our familiarity that we are sometimes too casual 
I've heard it. I think you've heard it. Some take the word Abba, make it daddy, which is what it meant. It's a term of endearment. But they begin to pray that. Almost irreverently, I, I would say. I, I don't know a person's heart. I couldn't tell you. But it comes across as being too familiar with the God of this universe. The God who holds everything in his hand. The God who controls everything. The God who is the God who is so powerful. This world exists because he thinks about it. And if he ever stopped thinking about anything, it would go poof away from it. You can be friends, you can be family, but you cannot be on the same level with that kind of being. And prayers ought to, your prayers ought to show that you are not on that level. You are not in that same place. And that's what it means when we pray in heaven. We also remember that though he is in heaven, he breaks open the heavens and comes down among us. He is like that first heaven. He's like the atmosphere that's all around us. Phrase I, I learned real early on, where you go, forego. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot get away from God. How did, how did uh, David put it? Where can I flee from your spirit? I can go to the highest mountains, the deepest sea. I can go to Sheol itself, and I can't get away from you. I mean, that drives people who are not Christians absolutely crazy. Because the last thing they want is to be in the presence of God. They want to get away from Him. And they can't. They just can't do it. Because God keeps reminding him, I'm here. You think you did something? You think, you think you're getting away? I'm here. It's almost like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the, terminal, in the Terminator. I'll be back. He's always here. And that is a reminder to us that he's present with us in at all times. He's not remote. We're going to see this in a little while at the end of the service when we come to the meal. What do we say about this meal? This meal reminds us of the presence of Christ in our midst. And by the Holy Spirit, Christ is brought to us in our midst. And by the Holy Spirit, we are brought to Christ in his midst. And we are with Christ. So when you take the bread and you drink your cup, you don't do it cavalierly. You don't do it quickly. You remember you are in the very presence of God. We say something very similar about this word, this book from which we read. That this is the very word of God and every word he has given to us. And when we read it, it is as if we're hearing that still, small voice of God speaking in our ear. And when we read it, God is very close. And there are sometimes he takes a word or a phrase and he just makes it jump out at you. And it grabs you and you go, whoa, how come I never saw that before? And the Father says to you, because I didn't want you to know it till now. And you know... God is the air you breathe. He's the atmosphere in which you operate. And he is with you. And he is attending you and present with you. And the fourth part, and this has to do with the, uh, 
the second question of our day, it's in the book, when it says, hallowed be your name. The first petition for which we pray. We know who to whom we are praying and in the, in the atmosphere in which we are praying. Now we start that petition. Hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is a strange word in our time and age because we don't use it very often. In fact, the time we really use it is the end of October. Hallowed ween, or All Saints Day, hallowed All, hallowed, uh, All Saints Day. But this is not a word I've heard a lot of people go, hallowed, 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 hallowed. But it's the idea that it is to make holy. And as I mentioned, this is not a declaration. It's a request. May your name be holy. That's why it's the first pe uh, petition. Let your name be holy. You know what that sounds like? Let me test your thinking. Go back a few weeks when we dealt with the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Hallowed be your name. And I think maybe one of the things I'll do this month is you take a look at the Lord's Prayer and see how much it lines up with the Ten Commandments and how, how they, they jive together. Part of my thinking is that Jesus really never said anything different than what the Old Testament did, just in new ways, in deeper ways. So he says, let your name be hallowed. He's just saying, fulfill the third commandment in your people uh, or in your word. Let it not become common, ordinary, but let it be set aside, purified. Let it become sacred. If anything in our day and age, even in the church, the name of God is not sacred. We use it or a derivative of it all the time. Um, I've heard people who have smashed their thumb use the name of the Lord and they weren't praying. Oh God, it hurts. Help me. No, they just said, oh God. And it's not hallowed. And Christians who use the alternatives and think they're getting away from it. No, it goes deeper than simply a three-letter word. It's the intention of the heart. And so the first petition you have for yourself and for the community, let your name be sacred. Let your name be lifted up on high. Let your name be consecrated in me, in us, and through us into this world. It reminds us of who God is. He is a brightness and he is a burning. He is the one who is, as you see, if, if, or as he is pictured in Scripture, as one like looking at the noonday sun, it burns your eyes. Even better, looking at an eclipse that can just uh, blind you. But he also is when you're with him, he's a burning bush. And therefore, his name is to be hallowed. There's something about thinking about you walk through this life 
in bare feet. Take your sandals off in my presence. I have friends who preach, and before they get up there, they, they wear loafers, so it's a lot easier. They take their shoes off. Because while they're preaching, they think they're, they believe they're in, on holy ground. I'd do that, but everyone would run out of the room. <laughs> no. But he is sacred enough. You think you're, you're walking barefoot on sacred ground wherever you are. Which ought to tell you something about wherever you go. Hmm. Went to meddling, didn't I? But that word in, in hallowed be your name is also a reminder that we have expectation of an answer. We are to look for what we pray. You know, the greatest and the chief end of God is not your happiness. It's not your carefree life. It's not fulfilling all, you, all that you need or want. The chief end of God is to glorify himself. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. Psalm 115.1. That's his chief end. And our chief end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Or to enjoy fully him forever. And that's what this prayer, this petition is. May we enjoy you to the utmost. And in our enjoyment, may you be glorified beyond any other measure. And that's what we look for when we pray this. That you would be exalted in and through us. Weak, damaged, crackpots, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians May you be glorified through us, and may your glory shine because of it. Now, on your outline, and I'm going to do this every week, is the application. Aspects upon which you can work, not only for this week, but for your whole life because of these prayers. One, that you get to know that Jesus, what Jesus taught you in his prayer, to trust the Father, to look to him in life, for all that he can give to you. That you grow in your appreciation and knowledge of the triune God by you study his names and character and you get to know him. I mean, the chief end of reading scripture is not that we find that verse that just speaks to us, but that we get to find something new about God and something deeper about God that we didn't know before. That you care how you use the Lord's name. And how you talk about his character. That you share with a friend what you understand about God as being holy. And, that, and what that means to you as you live and try to put this into practice. And finally, that you pray that the thrust of this part of the prayer will become yours in increasing measure. Because that's our great desire, not to us. Not to us, but to your name be glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it's a tall order. It's a tall order because it is so difficult for us to fulfill what you ask us to pray. 
And yet, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to fulfill that order. That you would inhabit us in such a way that we would look to you and see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of who you are. That we would get to recognize more and more the intimacy and the love you have for us. Even though we were rebels and we still are rebellious. And that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that we would recognize, Lord, when we pray, we are not praying alone, but we are praying for the community and with the community that you give to us. And we join together with countless others for the needs that are there. Not just our needs, O oh Lord, but the needs of the community around the world. So even this morning, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, in countries in which they are being slaughtered because they're Christians. They're watching their children be murdered because they follow you. And we pray that you would lift them up and care for them and provide, O oh Lord, the reality of Christ's words. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would drive the points of this talk and of your prayer home to us and that we would be transformed people in this part of our prayer life in order that we may not only just do a better job of it, but that you would receive the glory, the honor, and we would glorify you through it. Help us to enjoy you fully, both now and forever. For we ask it in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, Amen.